Hi and welcome to the podcast. My name, oh my god, okay. Three, two, one. Hi and welcome to season three of the Ease with Food podcast. I'm so happy that you've chosen to join me today. My name is Shannon. I'm a registered nutritionist, nutrition counselor, and eating disorder recovery coach. I hope that you enjoy this episode. Let's get on with the show. Hi everyone, welcome back to the podcast. Today we have not one but two guests with me. Um, We have the Hope Space with us to talk about coping skills in ED recovery. So we're going to be talking all about coping skills, how you can develop them, um, the types of coping skills that you might want in recovery. And we've got the experts here with us on coping skills. So I'll let Michelle and Lauren introduce themselves. Thank you so much, Shannon, for having us today. I'm Lauren, and I'm the founder of The Hope Space. I'm also a psychotherapist specializing in eating disorders, and it's a super pleasure to be with you today. And I'm Michelle. I'm an occupational therapist by background. I'm also the creative director in The Hope Space, and I'm also very, very happy to be here and sharing our knowledge. Amazing. Well, I'm happy to have you both. Um, I wonder, I guess for a bit of background, I mean, you've just kind of said your like professional qualifications, but I wonder, can you tell us a little bit about how you maybe got into eating disorder work and just how like the hope space developed in general? Mm, Absolutely. So I struggled with my own disordered relationship with eating from a very young age from the age of 13 and I had an amazing team of specialists in my hometown supporting me I also grew up with a mom that does educational psychology so I was always around a mom with a you know very keen heart to help others so I think I knew from a very young age that I wanted to do the same and follow a little bit in her footsteps. And I think um, getting the support for my disordered relationship with food was so empowering and so incredible for me and really set me up for the rest of my life. And so as soon as I finished my degree, actually, while I was studying my degree, I started to work with eating disorders in an inpatient unit and absolutely loved it. And I've never looked back and Um, well, Michelle and I are both from South Africa. So when I came to London, I decided to open the hope space and continue the work here and continue kind of connecting with the community and really just coming alongside people who are really struggling because I guess I knew what they were going through and the fears that they faced and the challenges that they faced. And I think it's quite a special job to have. Mm -hmm. Um, yeah absolutely I agree sorry Michelle you can go I was just gonna say in terms of um, some of my background um, Lauren and I actually we met in London Mm -hmm. even though we live like four minutes away from each other in South Africa we met in (laughs) London and a year into our friendship she decided to take me on a trip to the beautiful Amalfi Coast and over a glass of wine she decided to say right Michelle you need to come onto the hope space I love what you do in occupational therapy and it could be really helpful and empowering for our clients to have you here so I said yes (laughs) and it's been amazing since then we've absolutely had a blast and yeah I'm looking forward to our future in the hope space Mm, as well absolutely can you tell us um Well, because I don't actually know too much, but can you tell us, I guess, when the Hope Space was created and what kind of work you do? Is it like mostly one-to-one work? What what other kind of work do do you do? Yeah, sure. So the Hope Space, I think we officially became registered last year, August, but I had been seeing private clients for a few years before that and then working concurrently in other eating disorder units. Um, but Michelle and I, we do one-to-one therapy. We do exposure therapy. I think it's really important for Michelle to express what, how she supports eating disorder clients, because Mm. don't think you see many occupational therapists Mm -hmm. in the 
broader world and if they're so vital and I think we've been speaking to many professionals lately who's just say please Michelle come and help us because you know the practical side of recovery is so important um yeah so maybe you want to share a little bit yeah about... so I mean I, I, I don't really know where to begin because I, I suppose occupational therapy it looks at any activity during your day and sees how a diagnosis or a condition affects that. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, if you had to look at a physical condition, for example, a stroke, you might really struggle with brushing your teeth and we could help you do that. In terms of mental health, you're more looking at things like mood mm -hmm. and you know underlying uh, sort of factors that are affecting you in your eating disorder. So, mm -hmm. you know, you might not be able to, you might struggle with eating, as an activity during your day, but you have to really sort of dig into why it's affecting you. So whether it's your body image or perhaps your mood is so low or that's what we can do. So it, we, we do really, really practical things. Um, I give coping strategies or I talk you through um, an activity or we go and practice an activity. For example, I can take you to a restaurant and we can sit and we can have a meal together and we talk through your anxiety as we do the activity. So um, I think I do a lot of the practical sort of things as, uh, alongside Lauren um, and other psychologists. And that's, yeah, that's how I sort of also support the wider MDT. Mm. Mm. Okay, cool. Yeah. Um, yeah, the, the more practical side of recovery is definitely really important, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. absolutely. It's kind of, you know, it's nice for me to then have that space to do all the emotional work and then the client learn how to really implement that in real life with the guidance of Michelle, yeah. you know, and it makes quite a special team. And then I think the client also, then she, they often have quite a few challenges with the exposure therapy because it's, it's difficult. It's mm -hmm. really facing your fears head on. Mm -hmm. And then I can also hold a bit of that distress in the session. So yeah. yeah. And for example, like when you're doing your EMDR, your trauma therapy as well, yes. I can also hold them alongside that because that's also obviously very emotionally taxing. Mm. So I, even if I'm just holding a space for the client after that, that's also can be quite empowering for them. Mm. Mm. Yeah, that's so true. Holding space is one of the big key pillars of working with eating disorders Um and holding like the hope of recovery, which I love that you're the business is called the hope space. I think that like really highlights the, the exactly like, hope of recovery the whole, and pardon. That's the that's the whole reason it's called yeah. <laughs> nail on the head, exactly. <laughs> okay, good. I love that. All right. Well, we've kind of brushed up on like coping skills. Yes. I wonder, I mean, obviously we know that I brought you on the podcast to talk about coping skills. So can you let us know, like, just an overview of what they are, why they're important in recovery, and just for anyone who's never heard of the term coping skills before, like, just just what are they? Sure. So I guess th there's a beautiful metaphor that I once heard, and I think I, I use it quite a lot in sessions because I think it really beautifully encapsulates the importance of coping skills so the metaphor is your eating disorder is almost like a log in the water and you can't swim so you have both hands on this log and you're obviously terrified because if you let go you're going to drown and I think for many people when they come into treatment or therapy they really feel like that log is just ripped out of water and mm -hmm. they, they you know that's when you know, you relapse quite a lot. And I think that is a normal part of recovery. But I think it is terrifying because the log is the coping. It's the maladaptive coping mechanism. So part of treatment and part of therapy and the and this recovery journey is for us to kind of help the client with skills so that they can take one hand off the log. Hmm. Or they can start learning how to doggy paddle around the log and build the confidence to kind of get to shore and therefore no longer need the eating disorder or, or the log. Um, so it's, it's saying this is going to be a really difficult journey and we're going to have to ride the wave. But what tools can we instill you with to kind of help you with the distress help you with the anxiety, help you with the really uncomfortable feelings that are going to come up as you navigate 
letting this old coping mechanism go. Yes, yes. And I think it's really important to differentiate between a coping mechanism and a coping skill. Mm. So your mechanism, your coping mechanism comes out of it's, it's a stress response. Mm. You know, there may have been a trauma. There may have been some sort of stress that you had in your life and you've clung onto a coping mechanism like eating a disorder to try and, you know, swim, mm. to swim in the, the pool and cling onto that lug. Mm. Right. But then a coping skill is something that you actually have to intentionally practice and learn. Mm. You have to intentionally learn to swim into doggy paddle and to take your hand off that lug. Mm. So it's 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 very intentional. It's very, yeah, you just have to actually learn it. And I think, yeah, that, that's and the, the and practice it. Mm. And that's what makes it actually quite hard sometimes to <laughs> negotiate that. Mm. I love that analogy. I think that's lovely. Yeah. <laughs> it also reminds me that like it well, I think you've already said, but it's a practice. Like how you go swimming lessons. It's not yeah. like you just dive in and right. it's like sink or swim on your own. It's really like supporting people. And yeah. it's also it also kind of sounds to me like more of an invite rather than like an obligation like you can kind of you know take your hand off of the log whenever you feel like but obviously there is like some sort of safety and Mm -hmm. um, like purpose that comes from like using your eating disorder right Mm -hmm. maybe can you talk a little bit about you know there's safety there's like kind of this um I can't think of the word right now, but this almost like false safety that comes from an eating disorder. Mm. And then a coping skill is giving you kind of long-term safety. Can you speak to that a little bit, if that makes sense? Like a pseudo safety. Yes. And it really does give people the sense of safety, right? So, but what we know is that, so for, you know, really when I look at people's histories and how they've, you know, come to have disordered relationships with food. For many of them, it's like, wow, actually, I don't think you would have gotten through life without it. Mm-hmm. And in that moment, in that time in life, actually, it did help people manage their life and feel more in control and suppress maybe emotions that were really difficult and um, get support from people around them that never saw them. So, an eating disorder, I think, gives us a lot. There's a lot of secondary gain, but over time, it becomes debilitating. And I think this is why we call it an eating disorder, right? Over time, it becomes, your life becomes a little bit more disordered. And there also comes a stage where you don't need it anymore. And it saved you once, but it's not going to save you forever. And it becomes detrimental to your health and your mental health, your quality of life, your relationships. And there comes a time when there has to be motivation to learn how to swim. Mm. So, you know, it's not easy to take your hand off the log. It's not easy to want recovery, but there has to be at some point in your life. And I'm sure many people have gone through that stage of thinking, I can't go on like this, where there has to be a sense of motivation and want recovery and want to learn a new way and an adaptive Mm. coping skill. Um, Yeah. Yeah, because I think they get to the point where the eating disorder, it doesn't only just give them a sense of safety, but also takes away safety, it takes away quality of life, it takes away relationships, and then they come to the point of saying, actually, I I would like to do this differently, but it's it's really hard when you've had an, an illness that has been your best friend or your number one rock or the thing that has felt safe. So it's learning new ways to feel safe, and that's really, really tricky. Yeah, absolutely. I think everyone listening will also, um, I think they'll really like respond to that. And I think, um, I also wonder like, maybe just so we've kind of got it black and white for people to listen to, like a coping skill can be a whole bunch of things, right? Like what are some types of coping skills that you might help people with or maybe like categories and some examples like what can they be exactly 
we've got quite a few. We've actually mm. sort of come up with 10 things that you can sort of practically do to mm. try and help yourself. And perhaps we can go through them. Yeah, go for it. So the first one, which is, I suppose, a more obvious one, but also one that you don't necessarily need to develop a coping skill, but maybe just some help along the way, is to seek professional help. So somebody who will be able to guide you. Somebody like an occupational therapist is can absolutely help you through that. Mm. That's the first one. It's not absolutely necessary to build coping skills but it's a nice guide and I think sadly you know with the current financial climate a lot of people can't afford treatment right so I do I do know that there are eating disorder eating disorder anonymous groups and whatnot and I think just having a community of people that have gone through recovery I think there's something very special of in lived experience saying this really helped me it may not help you or it may help you but there's just something in that and I know there's also lots of Facebook groups and that that people can join to get support yeah so that was going to be the second point as well so building a solid support network Mm. so whether you're looking at you know anonymous groups or there are charities out there that you can try to find as well I know a few people um a few of our clients have that Mm. you can also um make sure that you've got like compassionate and empathetic people around you as well people that actually understand and want to support you on the journey whether that's family or friends or Mm. whomever you feel safe around that's that's a really having a safety network around you makes the swimming and the paddling a lot easier absolutely because yeah it's a it can be a very lonely and taxing journey so I think having people we can lean into really does help yeah and also the other thing in terms of family and friends is support sometimes just phoning a friend and saying you know would you like to have a meal with me that is using a coping skill it's reaching out it's you know asking for people to walk alongside you on the journey yeah absolutely um, the next one, the third thing that we were thinking of is to practice mindful eating. So if you are sitting in front of your plate, it can literally be talking yourself through the taste, the textures, the colors, listening to what your body is saying. Am I full or am I just kind of feeling like I've like satiated the, the hunger? Mm. Am I actually feeling full? So it's it's all about actually mindful eating, mindful drinking as well. Mm. And I think for some people that can be really hard. So often I would say to the clients, mm. if that's going to be really hard, why don't we take it, just do it on the first mouthful. Yeah. So on the first mouthful, let's check in with the textures, taste, smell, and then eat all the rest of the meal normally or put on some music in the background, make your eating times a little bit more enjoyable because often they can be quite tricky so yeah okay number four is challenging negative thoughts so often our clients come in with black or white thinking or they have these negative thinking patterns they've got an all or nothing behavior um and we the first step in that is just being aware of it so even if you just talk to yourself in an ugly manner, being aware of that self-critical voice can be super empowering because, you know, first step is awareness, second step is starting to change that. So if you're just aware of, you know, oh, I'm a terrible person or, oh my word, I can't eat anything today or I, I feel so hideous looking at myself in the mirror, just by listening to what you are saying to yourself and just challenging that challenge it why Mm. why do I have to speak to myself in such an ugly way Mm. why can't I be more compassionate and often our clients are so compassionate to other people Mm. they need to learn to take some of that compassionate talk for others and apply it to themselves Mm. they've got the capabilities all of them do people a lot of our people are empathetic but we need to be empathetic for ourselves as well Mm. well I think it's also building the skills to do that so even even if you just start with a more neutral affirmation, right? I don't need yeah. to like this, but I need to do this because food is my medicine. 
Um, having little quotes like that around around you that it's hard but this will pass yeah. um might just be little steps to just support through those difficult periods yeah yeah as long as you're bringing awareness to it that's that's slowly building yourself up mm-hmm. and then after some time that's when you can start to change it to more neutral thoughts or change it further than mm-hmm. that that's mm-hmm. how you it's how you can build and change your that negative self-talk I guess that also makes me think around a lot of these behaviors because especially with people that have had the this illness for such a long time they almost become quite unconscious right so we don't even realize that we're doing it and having someone around you to say that's a little bit abnormal you know to bring awareness to that and then they realize oh my goodness that that was a bit strange you know standing for five hours is a bit strange and not taking a race and but really it is sometimes so unconscious so I think that is where having a someone that is has more experience with eating disorders can be quite helpful just in terms of pointing out the things that sometimes you may not it may, they may not fully be yeah. acknowledged. And I think you can question, like, would I say this to a loved one? Mm. If I would say it exactly how you've said it to yourself, to a loved one, mm. and you don't think you'd offend them or make them upset, mm. it's probably an okay thought. But if it's a self, ugly self-talk, it, you might be upsetting your loved one, including yourself. Mm. Yeah, mm. It's quite a powerful one, I think. Um. So, yeah, the next one is the fifth one so developing sort of hobbies and more social participation so a lot of again a lot of our clients you know they've all they've ever known is eating disorders they've been encompassed by an eating disorder Mm -hmm. and they need to start trying to find themselves finding the joy in an everyday task Mm -hmm. you know whether that's exploring different leisure tasks so like um looking at art looking at pottery looking Mm. at um anything that comes of interest really just trying to explore whether maybe it's journaling maybe it's reading maybe it's puzzling Mm. whatever Mm. it is there needs to be some exploration in other tasks that don't always have to involve food necessarily Mm. it's Mm. just Mm. expanding your horizon a bit and yeah developing that quality of life so for Often when patients come to see us for cognitive behavioral therapy, especially the one dedicated to eating disorders, the big thing is, okay, let's look at something that may be of interest to you, maybe something in the past that you really enjoyed. Choose one thing and we have to at least try it three times. We have to give it a good shot because I think the eating disorder does bleed into every area of your life. And I think when you have more, you have other things to focus on and other things that give you purpose, it becomes a little bit less important. And there also are good distraction techniques. So having a really difficult day, let me go to that pottery class and let me connect with other people. And Again, it's a little bit of a hand-holding, but with activities. Oh, yeah, absolutely. So you're trying to find yourself outside of an eating disorder. And is that not just so actually quite empowering? Mm. Trying mm-hmm. to, you're trying to take one hand off of the log mm. by finding yourself in another activity. Mm. Okay. Number six is um, establish structured meal plans. I think this is kind of drilled into you. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, as an eating disorder person, as a as somebody who suffers from eating disorders um, from the get-go. So hopefully there's some sort of structure that you have within an, a, a meal plan and you know how to do that. But there needs to be, you know, a, at least a breakfast, lunchtime, dinner, meal. If that and 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 I would also say, you know, seeking some advice here probably is the mm. the best because I'm going generally here. So whether you speak to a nutritionist, a dietitian, or even just, you know, your psychotherapist, occupational therapist for some guidance, that would be really helpful. But yes, you usually have a breakfast, a lunch, and a dinner. There needs to be a protein, a veggie, a carb, and there <laughs> needs to be variety within your food. Mm. So and even if you're just sticking to those green safe foods initially where you are 
you know, feeling a little bit more safe and more comfortable with eating those types of things um, so that you can explore other tasks. And this is kind of giving you a bit of more of a safety net then that's yeah, quite helpful. So just making sure that you've got really a good structure mm-hmm. in your daily routine can can quite help you. Yeah, there. I think uh, when Michelle references green foods, you know, sometimes what we do ask clients to do is to go through a catalog on a grocery store and just, you know, categorize for them what are foods are green, safe, orange, a little bit more scary and red, totally avoided. Mm. And, you know, especially, you know, if you are scared of food and not, not all are, you know, not everyone that struggles is that, you know, absolutely terrified of food, but you may realize, oh my goodness, I've avoided that food group or that product for such a long time. You don't even remember that it existed. So actually putting them there and seeing, okay, wow, this orange and red list is quite long in comparison to my green list. And slowly, slowly, I can start challenging the orange and red list. Even, and I say to clients, even if it's just a little, it's a teaspoon of something, that's already a great challenge. But I think when we really start challenging the eating disorder and those rules, that's where some of those distress tolerance techniques are important. And I think just as we label the green, orange, red list, I would also do that with emotions. So I would say to clients, okay, think about a thermometer. Green is we're safe, we're present, we're able to socialize, we're able to connect. Orange is, or orange, I mean, red, sorry, is no, I'm getting this totally wrong. Green, then like a yellow is a little bit more anxious, a little bit yeah. more stressed. Yeah. <laughs> there we go. And red is super distressful. Super distressed, right? And again, this is something that we have to learn over time because everyone, the tools that people use, some will work for some people and yes. some won't work for some Absolutely. people, right? So it's almost about... It's trial and error, which I think is very frustrating because the eating disorder gives it almost like a con- like a yeah. instant gratification at times, right? It's a we it's a solid coping yeah. strategy mechanism. mechanism. Yeah, and the frustrating thing is that some of the other tools are not, you know, yeah, people don't people don't know what coping mechanism or skill is right for them, and this is also why we were trying to give at least 10 different things that you have to try and you have to practice mm. and you have to like at least just give it a chance. Mm. Um, even if there's just one thing that you find is actually quite helpful, then that's great. Then you build on that mm. one thing. So mm. I think, yeah, in terms of this this number six, uh, like a structured meal plans, just giving structure to your day mm. can be quite empowering sometimes. Yes. especially initially when you need I think, a little bit of structure and you're trying to there's like a starting point going mm, forward mm, mm. okay um number seven is sort of practicing self-care and this can be a wide range of things right so it can be anything that reduces your stress so going for a walk it can be anything that pr- like uh, promotes relaxation so uh deep breathing meditation yoga uh, being mindful yeah yeah I think the just on the yoga and the gentle walk only if recommended absolutely um but also that would for me fit into that green yellow area on your emotional thermometer because I think when anxiety becomes really heightened we maybe need some more active skills and maybe you and I can touch on those a little bit but the green orangey yellow part of that thermometer I think it's quite nice to just keep get yourself a little bit grounded focus on the breath focus on the present moment do some of those you know five senses what can I see what can I hear what can I absolutely taste around me yes so I think um just to build onto that one the one that I give up quite a bit is I ask you know, just to walk around your garden Mm. and focus on one color. Mm. So let's say you choose green. 
You walk into your garden or you just walk outside and you find everything that is green for five minutes Mm -hmm. and you, and you go and touch it and you feel it and you smell it and you explain to yourself what that is. And you focus on that one thing. Mm -hmm. What is it? It might be a green leaf. It might be some green grass. It might be a green t-shirt. I don't know. But the point is that, that you're focusing your mind on something and therefore grounding yourself. So instead of feeling feeling super anxious, you are trying to sort of guide yourself into grounding in that <laughs> moment. Yes, in the present moment. Another one that is really helpful, like deep breathing exercises. So you can just count to yourself. If you do the six rule, this is the one that I do. I don't know which one you do, but the six rule is you breathe in through your nose as deeply as you can for six seconds you hold for six seconds and then you breathe out as if you were blowing a candle out for six seconds so six 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 Mm. and you repeat that until you've calmed your heart rate down you've calmed your nervous system and you've tried to just ground yourself and 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 again it needs to be practiced both when you're calm and when you're stressed because sometimes it doesn't go as quickly when you're stressed Mm. but you know that it works So I think Mish just pointed out a very important thing. You know, we often want to use our coping strategies or skills when we're stressed, but actually the best time to practice them is when we're calm. So almost in that structure, you know, if you structure your, your week a little bit, say, okay, two minutes every morning, I'm going to practice my deep breathing on that mindful walk to work. I'm going to pick out a color and really notice it and really ground into that space. So that way, when life becomes really stressful, we, you have these things that they're almost a little bit more automatic. You can recall them easily because I think when we are distressed, it's really, really difficult to recall what is going to work in this moment. Yeah. We get stressed about being stressed. Absolutely. Mm. Another thing that I sort of give out, and I think, sorry, we, we, we're going to touch on this one quite a bit because I think this is where all the practical sort of uh, coping skills come in. Another one is distress tolerance. You mentioned mm. a little bit earlier, but distress tolerance is your sort of grounding techniques. And those have to be practiced when you are, calm so that is like lauren said when you are tapping into all of your senses and you've got to like really heighten them a little bit so for example for smell you can light a candle or put some incense on Mm. for um, taste you can have a cup of tea for touch you can be feeling your warm cup of tea for sound you can play your favorite music or some calming classical music for example you know so and in sight you are looking around or closing your eyes even closing your eyes is a good one and even if you just do that for five minutes and hone in on all five of your senses and sort of you know honor all those five senses for five minutes that can also be really, really helpful. And then you know when you when you do get distressed or when you're in an um, anxiety-provoking sort of situation, you take yourself away, you go and do five minutes of your distress tolerance techniques, and you're going to calm down when you are super distressed. Mm. So that's a really nice one. But again, you've got to practice when you are calm. Another one is like, you know, if you are feeling like a lot after a long day, for example, having a hot bath with some bubble bath mm. and putting some, you know, bubblies in your bath and just taking some time for yourself. Mm. Those yeah. are the types of like sort of self care things we can do. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I think on the flip side of that, if you're in that red zone, you really distress, the mindfulness is not going to really work, really be working because you actually don't want to become too present with that distress. Mm. Temperature control is also a, a really, really good coping skill. So getting some ice out of the freezer, holding that ice, mm. really shocking the nervous system a little bit, going and having, a, a, you know, a shower, getting your hair wet, and um, that really just helps recalibrate a little yeah. bit, so that Absolutely. you do calm down. Then you can start using the mindfulness. Yeah. So especially in that red zone. Yeah. Another one that we can do as well, and and I think this one does need to be guided. Um, it's something that I do with all my clients when we start, 
is building a structured routine. So you need to be questioning, what time am I going to be waking up every morning? What time do I go to sleep? What time am I eating throughout the day? When am I, you know, honoring my exercise? If you are allowed to exercise, when am I honoring my work time? When do I look at my hobbies and when am I giving myself my own time mm. so you've really struck and when are you when are you going to see like friends and family because what a lot of our clients also do is they overfill their days and then they get so overwhelmed mm. or on the flip side they do absolutely nothing and isolate and isolate mm. and then I feel feel so alone in tackling this mm. there needs to be variety there needs to be some structure and that can give a lot of again empowerment to somebody mm. who might not who might be feeling really overwhelmed with such a, a routine absolutely and I think you know I think clients do come and they say oh but Lauren this this sounds so rigid yes and I think the meal plan even sounds so rigid at times yes. and I hear you I really I really do it sounds so robotic but I think when you have had an eating disorder you know you you really lose touch of that inner wisdom. So you yeah. lose touch of like, what is my capacity or what are my hunger cues? What are my fullness cues? And actually in the beginning stage of, stages of recovery, we do need to have a little bit more structure. We do need to plan mm-hmm. for our needs that we've neglected for so long, right? So it's building that intuition almost. Actually. Absolutely. And you, as you navigate through recovery, you know, you will become a bit more intuitive and the structure won't be, you know, you won't have to write the structure down. It will just hopefully be a scaffolding that you lean into that's, you know, that you embrace. And you know, you can kind of push the boundaries on some days and and pull back on other days. Yes, but it always is a foundation that you can come back to. Yes. So I also think it's it's a beautiful tool for, you know, as we go through life and we know that recovery is not linear, there's always going to be times in our life where it, it it gets a little bit more tricky. And those are also the times that we learn. But I often say, okay, wow, you three is in recovery, but you're going through, you know, a breakup. Go back to basics. Yes. And when I say go back to basics, that does mean getting back on your structure. Yeah. Because that is just your little support mechanism yeah. just to get you through the difficult times. And then you go back to your intuition. Yeah. Or even those those clients that are really, really well into their recovery, you know, they've got work and they're starting university and they're starting all of these new um, new things. Again, yeah, this going back to basics can be quite helpful. So, for example, last year in August, I was, you know, working my full time uh, day job. I was then starting the hope space. I was then also starting a new degree at university and I all of a sudden was completely overwhelmed and I had no idea what to do with myself and I literally sat down for half an hour and I wrote out my routine and I said right this is the amount of time I'm going to give to the hope space this is the amount of time I'm giving to work this is the amount of time I'm giving to my studies this is the amount of time I'm giving to my relationships and that just by breaking it down and knowing that plan in my head it gave me so much freedom because mm. then I knew that I could push on some days or well, some days I actually just needed to say, you know what? I can't go out that night. I've got to, I've got to sit down and, and be with myself. Mm. It gives, it, it really, it can be quite empowering. Mm. Okay. <laughs> so the next one is to educate yourself. Number eight, to educate yourself. So I think again, there's the, you know, there's a lot of resources out there that you can, you can, tie into if you go onto the hope spaces instagram as well we are constantly posting new information and and trying to educate people about Mm -hmm. eating disorders there there is so much information out there that you can absolutely try to tap into and and you just need to access it that's that's all you have to do so for example also um you know we on the on the hope space we've also got a lovely new like sort of project that we're pushing which is called the um the toolbox of recommendations <laughs> like coping it's again it's like a, a coping skills recommendations so every two weeks we post a new skill or a new coping yeah mechanism mm-hmm. that you can put in your little toolbox and every time you get a little bit distressed you can pull one of them out so we have spoken about a few of them as well, mm. but it's just knowing that 
there is information out there. And the more that you educate yourself on anything and everything eating disorders or recovery related, it empowers you to be aware and to then make the change. Mm. And to not feel so alone, right? To kind of reduce some of the stigma, to reduce the isolation, to realize, oh goodness, other people are experiencing very similar things to me. Um, I think there's something very, very special about that, very important about that. Yeah. And I think there's also other websites like Beat, um, they do a lot of good eating disorder resources and whatnot. So yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, number nine is to set some realistic goals. Mm. Again, I think this this taps into a little bit like about what we were saying about you know when we are trying to make changes we want to be super spontaneous and not be so rigid but sometimes that's where your realistic goals are really important so just you know even something like challenging yourself to one orange meal a week that's Mm. that's a really good goal that's Mm. really that's brilliant Mm. and sometimes I think we do need often some guidance with this though it can be really tricky but I think this is also when you know chatting to other people and even if they're anonymous groups um, you can get a little bit more of a realistic picture of what you can achieve Mm. that's I think the realistic word there is quite important well I think there's that acronym right smart yeah when setting goals so specific needs to be specific measurable achievable realistic and time and timely yeah and then the last one but not least you need to celebrate your accomplishments Mm. and they don't have to be eating related they can or food related Mm. they can be anything let's say you got out of bed today and you had a shower fantastic that's that's a that's a brilliant celebration if you've been in bed for quite quite some time um if let's say you're a little bit further along in recovery and you went out with 10 people and you managed to have like a wholesome meal mm. and it didn't give you anxiety fantastic that's brilliant um or oh, it did but you still went or, or did you exactly <laughs> you need to celebrate those those accomplishments as you go as well and give mm. yourself a little tap on the back the small ones i also think sometimes at night journaling what went well today and what am I looking forward to tomorrow I think it's just shifting focus a little bit and also trying to see a little bit of light at the end of the tunnel yeah absolutely absolutely even just sort of even if you just recognize how you change the way you talk to yourself Mm. or when you look in the mirror and you you think you know, I actually look good today. That's an accomplishment mm-hmm. and that needs to be celebrated. And you, you need to notice how you shift in recovery. Mm-hmm. I think that can be really empowering. It can also give you a lot of motivation to continue and keep going. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So those are our sort of 10 <laughs> tips and tricks. And hopefully one of them will resonate with yeah your listeners. And hopefully that'll just give them a little bit of motivation to continue and keep going yeah absolutely well I mean thank you so much I just know that you know when I was struggling with disordered eating I just know that having someone talk through all of those ways that I can take care of myself and you know work through my recovery like oh that would be so helpful I wish I had um I really wish that I had the support that I like know that you're given people when I needed it if that makes sense (laughs) um thank you and I wonder I mean obviously I'm gonna link all your resources like the toolkit and your Instagram page website I wonder those like 10 examples that you have those 10 like pillars are those like written down somewhere that people can explore or is the toolkit the toolkit the best place to head to if they want to maybe be like exploring if they didn't have time to write everything down sure I I think well we've written it down so 
I'm, we're very happy to send it and maybe you can link it somehow to and I'm happy to make a post about it as well um mm. I can put it perhaps when you post the podcast I will put it in uh, and tag it in um, our own social media as well so people can have a look and then if, if on the hope space if you're on the on the sort of Instagram page or the website you can then click on the link to see all of our toolbox recommendations and that's the the number seven in this um, list of things all of those things we discussed is literally everything of the in the toolbox <laughs> it's all there for you so yeah it's quite comprehensive and hopefully that sort of yeah those resources will help somebody out there mm, absolutely perfect yeah. cool well I wonder I mean you've given us so much already but I wonder Maybe if I can ask just a few questions about coping skills, would that be okay? Absolutely. Okay, well, something that when I asked my Instagram followers about coping skills, something one of them asked was, um, like, what's the difference between coping skills and just like general self-care? Mm. And I know one of the pillars of yours that you gave was self-care. So I wonder, like, what do you see the differences between the two? I wonder if, you know, actually, <laughs> I think self-care can be seen as a coping skill, yeah. right? So often, you know, because distraction is often a coping skill. So when I am look, saying, okay, what are we going to do for the evening, right? How are you going to look after yourself tonight? I would always say that self-care is a need. It's a personal need that we do need to try and meet, but we can also use it as a coping skill. So painting or nails, having a self-care day, doing a face mask, those are all beautiful distractions from, you know, from when life, life gets yeah. hard. Yeah. I think what I would say the difference is, is the intention behind it. Mm -hmm. so if you're doing, you know, just self-care tasks to make sure that your hair looks great or, you know, your nails are done, then that's probably just more self-care. But if you're in the intention behind it is to actually make sure that I'm relaxing or to make sure that I am, you know, just giving myself some time or perhaps that's more of a coping skill. But I do think that they kind of entwine a little yes, bit and absolutely. they complement each other. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah, me too. Okay, cool, cool. Um, and I wonder, I mean, I think this is kind of, I think we know the answer, but let's ask just so it's out there anyway. When do you stop using coping skills? I think it's a very good question. Mm -hmm. yeah. But, you know, Mish and I were reflecting on this and we we don't think that you ever need to stop. Mm -hmm. yeah. <laughs> and there'll be times in your recovery where you're going to be feeling like you're using coping skills left, right and center. It's like, you, you know, you feel like you're drowning a little bit. You need every coping skill in the toolbox. You're yeah. really practicing. And, and there are going to be seasons in your life that are more relaxed. Yeah. But I would still say, especially the mindfulness, the grounding, the, the deep breathing, the being present. I think those are just good for even general day stress. Yeah. Life Absolutely. is hard in general. Yeah. So yeah. I think that you would probably, the frequency probably will be, will fluctuate oh. over time yeah. but I think that the toolbox is forever hopefully going to be integrated into your life and you can lean on yeah. it when you need it you can lean less on it at times but it'll always be there once you know those skills yeah and hopefully as well they will become a second nature so you won't have to go and intentionally practice something yes. it's like driving a car you'll have to practice 10 times over in the beginning but it becomes second nature and you can lean on that skill when you need it mm. later on in your journey. And again, it doesn't have to necessarily be, you know, just for anybody with eating disorders or disordered eating. It can be for anybody. Coping skills is for anybody. Absolutely. Even your top, you know, executives <laughs> will need some sort of coping strategy to manage all their daily stresses, for example. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. That's okay, awesome. cool. <laughs> um, well, I guess those are all the questions that I had. I wonder, maybe let's do, just for us to wrap up today, I sure. wonder if you can give us maybe two or three tips for, I don't know, developing coping skills or things that you would recommend for people to start, like 
yeah, maybe just a couple of quick things. And I know you've already given us so much. So it can be a repeat of something you've already said, like just kind of final thoughts, I guess. I think to get started, first of all, you need to dedicate the time, Mm -hmm. right? So you need to choose a time in your day, whether it's when you wake up in the morning or last thing when you go to bed, there needs to be a dedicated time where you are practicing those skills. Mm. That's the first thing you need to dedicate the time. Or even creating the toolbox. So your own personalized toolbox. Yeah, that can be the second thing, yeah. Right? Because like we've said, it's all very individual. So what works for me is not going to work for you necessarily, or it may, but maybe sitting down and starting with that green, orange, red list. Yeah. Starting with the structure. So getting that back to basics yeah structure in place for you what's going to work for you what feels okay for you and then it's just one little step at a time and knowing that you actually have to trial a few things and Mm. the first few things are not might not work (laughs) and it's okay if it doesn't work but keep going until you find something that does work for you Mm. and then the last thing I'd say is you know you probably you probably in, when you are feeling super anxious or super stressed or in distress, you might not initially naturally want to use a coping skill. Mm. You might want to default to a coping mechanism. It's really important to then be intentional in the moment. Once you've been practicing, go and use it and trial something that you found is working. Mm. That's what I'd, I'd say will kind of hopefully solidify everything yeah start building evidence for something different but it's going to feel totally out of your comfort zone it's going to feel unnatural it's going to feel like no well how would how could journaling and deep breathing help me in this situation (laughs) but it's about giving it a shot and just seeing and may you might just be surprised so we often say you know don't quit before the magic happens yeah amazing well I know that everyone will have found that this um this episode really helpful. So yeah, thank you for coming on. And I guess I'm gonna link your toolkit, website, Instagram. Is there any other place that would be uh, people would be able to find you? Anything else you want to plug? I think the Instagram and the website is our two sort of main sources. Mm-hmm. Everything else is linked within Instagram and um and and the website. So if you ever felt like you wanted to get in contact with us or you know see any of our other spaces, they're all linked there. So those are probably the best two to reach us on. Okay, perfect. Well, thank you again for coming on. I really appreciate it. Thanks um, for having us, Shannon. We really really enjoyed it. Yes. Yeah, it was really lovely. Um. Well, thank you everyone for listening and I will see you all next week. Bye-bye.